We are looking at what Jesus would have meant when he said in Mark chapter 1, the kingdom of God has drawn near. As we examine the Jesus way, we want to know what he meant by the word kingdom. So yesterday we began this look, and I suggested uh, for a thumbnail definition of the kingdom of God, a kingdom is a people ruled by a king. That's a short summary. You can always quote this to people when they ask you what kingdom means. And then the kingdom of Jesus would be a people ruled by Jesus. But that needs to be expanded into five constituent elements for the kingdom to be clear for the Bible so that we have a comprehensive understanding of kingdom in the Bible. And I suggested those five were that we have to have a king. This king has to rule, but he rules both as a governor or as Lord and redemptively as Savior. And then there has to be a people over whom he rules. And in the pages of the Bible, this is Israel expanded in the New Testament to include Gentiles and called the church. And then these people are governed by the king who reveals to them his will for their people, for this people. We call this in the Bible the Torah or the law, and in the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus and life in the Spirit as the Apostle Paul unfolds it. And finally, for there to be a kingdom, the fifth element is there must be a land or space in which these people dwell. So king, rule, people, law, and land keep those five in mind, you'll forever be safe on kingdom theology. Start reducing them, and then kingdom starts getting distorted, and we begin to use it for our own agendas. When we keep the five elements in view, then suddenly uh, we are challenged by the kingdom to indwell and embody this people in the world as a witness to the redemptive power and glory of God. So we began yesterday to look at the idea of the king and who is the king and how does this king rule. Let me suggest that this is a very important idea about kingdom, and it is this, that the character of the king determines the character of the kingdom. The character of the king determines the character of the king. Some of you are worried, I'm not, that Donald Trump will be elected in the United States. And you're worried about the character of that character, I think that's appropriate, shaping the character of the United States. That's the biggest issue, because the character of a king will shape the character of the kingdom. Just as the character of leaders in churches will shape the character of churches. So we have to focus on the character of God. And the character of God we looked at yesterday is that this is a God of covenant love. Love is a great idea until you understand what it is. And then it becomes one of the most challenging uh, dimensions of life. So we looked at love as having these characteristics, that it is a rugged commitment to be with someone, 
to be for someone as both grow unto Christ's likeness. This is a characteristic of our king. God is king and Jesus as the king of the church and the kingdom. But we want to expand that this morning now uh, because we're a little bit behind. Uh, And so we want to expand it from covenant love to an expression that I I find very important in biblical theology today. And I'd like you to learn to use this term. I think it's a good term. It will also be one that you can impress your friends with as having you be theologically sophisticated if you use this term. And the term is cruciformity. Cruciformity. That is being conformed to the cross. We don't have time to develop this at length. But in the pages of the New Testament, we see that Jesus has come to be the Messiah. But the shocking revelation of Jesus as the Messiah is that he is not what they expected. They expected a rider on a white horse who would come in and slay the Romans, kick them in the butt, put them in boats, and send them back to Rome where they belong. So Jesus is not what they expected. They expected a ruler who would win by military might. And one of the great texts of intertestamental Judaism, or the Judaism between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is called the Psalms of Solomon, describing the Messiah. And when the Messiah came, he would come on a horse and he would rule and conquer and defeat all the Gentiles and annihilate them. Strong language. So it would be a military victory. And they expected Jesus to be a military uh, leader if he is the Messiah. But he's everything but that. In fact, he completely disavows that form of leading and ruling in Israel. And one of the great texts on this is found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, which shows us that the character of our king is unlike the character of any king that the disciples would have known in the Roman world, although they were tempted by this. In Mark chapter 10, verse 41, we read this. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They became indignant because... James and John had asked in the kingdom of God if they could have special seats, one to the right of Jesus and one to the left. In other words, they thought they were the MVPs of the kingdom of God, and they were going to sit next to Jesus. Jesus called them together and said, so he's, he just sabotages this idea. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. So the predominant words of the Gentiles, code language for the Romans, and anyone influenced by the Romans is lording and authority. Obsessions with lording and authority are signs of leaders who are not connected to Jesus properly. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
So instead of lords in the church, we have servants. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all, servants and slaves. For even the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is a a magical name in Daniel chapter 7. For Israel, represented by a single leader in a messianic way, who will be given all the authority over all of God's universe and creation. For even the Son of Man, who could claim authority and lording, did not come to be served as the Roman leaders, but to serve. And he came to give his life a ransom for many. This is a beautiful verse expressing what cruciformity is. The character of a king determines the character of a kingdom. To the degree that our little kingdoms, our little churches, are conformed to Jesus as the servant, as the one who gave himself as a ransom for many, who sacrificed himself for others, to the degree that they're shaped that way, they are connected to the Lord of this kingdom. To the degree that they are concerned with power and authority and lording it over others and subordination and domination, they are disconnected from the king of the kingdom that we are in. So that the character of the king shapes the kingdom. And so now we learn that God, the king of the kingdom, is a God characterized by sacrificial love for the benefit of others. And we looked at love as a rugged commitment to be with someone for them. That's exactly the character of our king. He came to be with us, and he gave himself for us so that we might untuness, we might become Christ-like, so that we might become cruciform in our own lives. The character of a king determines the character of the kingdom. And this leads me now to the Lord's Prayer with a slightly new reading of the Lord's Prayer in light of these two themes. If the king is one characterized by a covenant love that results in the cross, we have a different kind of God, we have a different kind of king. Our king is a loving, sacrificial king who gives himself for the benefit of others. So that the kingdom now becomes populated by people whose very instinct is to give themselves for the sake of others. And this is not easy. This is demanding. This is inconvenient. I've always said that love is fundamentally inconvenient when you love your neighbor as yourself. My neighbors ask me to do things for them at all the wrong times. On Saturday mornings, I go to my front porch, and I open up my Greek New Testament, and I expound the Greek New Testament for my neighbors, and no one's interested. Because I'm available at Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. The errands are run. We've had our coffee. We've had two coffees. We've had three coffees. 
and we're ready for afternoon sports. But we have a few time slots there where I can expound the Greek New Testament. But they never come. They're not interested. Instead, they ask me to mow their grass when it's 95 degrees. Do you know what 95 degrees is? No, you don't. This is Ireland. (laughs) This is supposed to be summer, folks. We call this fall or autumn. Uh, It was over 90 degrees when we left Chicago. I mean, you sweat thinking about getting up in the morning. So they asked me to mow their grass, and their grass is too long because they took the week off before. Or they asked me to mow their, or shovel their snow. Do you know what that is? We get feet of snow, not foots. It just piles up in Chicago. Sometimes we'll get two or three feet of snow in one day, and it's brutal. And that's when my neighbors go on vacation, and they ask me to shovel out their driveway. Love is almost always convenient, but because its instinct is to do what's good for the other and to help the other, it is willing to interrupt plans in order to help someone else. Our king is like this, and we realize this as we read the Lord's Prayer, realizing that every line in the Lord's Prayer is a revelation of what our king is like. Now, we don't have time to expound it at length, but let me draw your attention to a few expressions. Jesus has humorously criticized how Gentiles pray. They mention the name of every god they've ever heard, hoping they can find one awake to listen to their prayers. And then he turns on his Jewish contemporaries, undoubtedly the stereotype of a Pharisee, when he says uh, that they, they like to pray on street corners so that they'll be noticed. But Jesus says, instead of praying like the Pharisees and the Gentiles, this is how I want you to pray, recognizing the kind of God you have. This, then, is how you should pray, verse 9 of Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, God is to be called Father. The language of Father is the language of the family. It is the language of respect. It is the language of love. It is the language of children endearing themselves with their fathers as they grow up and learning the love of God through the love of their father. So father is a magical term in the New Testament for God. And this is not characteristic of Judaism. It is characteristic of earliest Christianity. It is found in Judaism, but it is rare and it is not the distinctive and characteristic way Jews address God. Instead, Jesus calls his disciples to call God Father in heaven, and he says first, may your name be hallowed. This is the language of reverence before this God. Our God loves us as Father, but we are to reverence this Father in that love, because this love is pure and holy and distinctive and calls us from the world of sin and sickness and systemic injustice and calls us in a relationship with this Father. And then this Father that we are to pray to is in charge of history. Notice what he says here. May your kingdom come 
and may your will be done. That is, we are to pray that God's kingdom, which has broken into time in Jesus, but is not completely present, we are to ache and long for the day when the kingdom of God will come, which is characterized by people of God doing the will of God, when all of creation will respond to God. And we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, so that we are to embody kingdom reality in our life on earth as it is done in heaven. This Father is also one who provides. He says, give us today our daily bread. Now, we've all learned to read this text this way, but behind it lurks a thousand theological questions and exegetical debates because Jesus uses a word here, or Matthew uses a word, that nobody knows what it means. It's the only time it is ever used. And so it could be our daily bread, it could be the bread of morrow, of tomorrow. It could be the bread that will come in the kingdom of God. And anyone who tells you they know for sure knows too much, because we simply don't know. But because we've learned to read it as our daily bread, let's just stick with that, because you won't get in trouble in your churches if you insist that people not say daily bread, but say bread of tomorrow, and that will just ruin everything. Then Jesus says, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debts. And this word debt is a standard term used in the Jewish world for sins. Our God is a God of forgiveness, which means our covenant God who loves us and who has become cruciform in Christ to reveal what God is really like has come into our world to release us from our sins and to rescue us from our oppressions and bondages and to liberate us so that we can become the kinds of people that he wants. Which means we have to confess that we are sinners. This doesn't do any good. You don't get forgiveness, you know, accidentally just because you, you swiped your card at the right time. No, we have to confess our sins and acknowledge our sins, and then we can be forgiven. But there is something very interesting about forgiveness in this passage in the Lord's Prayer. If Matthew were writing a text today, he would have had a footnote at the bottom of the page, and you can read it in verses 14 to 15. And this is a powerful dynamic that illustrates my point, that the character of a king determines the character of a kingdom. And our king is a king noted by covenant love and cruciformity, who gives himself for others, and therefore we are to be marked by covenant love and cruciformity, which means that if we are forgiven, we are to become agents of forgiveness. Look at verses 14 to 15. This scares every serious Protestant. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. The natural question is, wow, is my forgiveness from God dependent upon my willingness 
or forgivingness of other people. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Jesus answered that question, and we don't always like the the answer. Our summons is to take on the character of our King. Our King forgives. Forgiveness is extraordinarily difficult to live with. It is extraordinarily difficult to go through as a process. I have a friend who's an author. Her name is Leslie Leland Fields. She lives in Kodiak, Alaska. They call Kodiak Island in Alaska the Emerald Island. They've never heard of Ireland. They don't know that you took that first. But it is an island very much like your island, only no one lives there. 15,000 people on a fairly large island. Leslie grew up in New Hampshire. And I think it would be fair to say that she grew up in an extraordinarily dysfunctional family. And they kept everything secret inside the house, and it became a very unhealthy system. And she tells some of this story in a book called Surviving the Island of Grace. She also tells it in a beautiful book called Forgiving Our Mothers and Fathers. And she tells in her story, in her books, the story of her father who was abusive to her older sister, but who left Leslie alone. She has no idea why. She almost has survivor's guilt about this that he sexually abused his daughter, her older sister, for years, and her sister never told anyone. But their family was a family that went to church. And they went to church all the time, to conservative evangelical churches, and no one knew the stories, locked up inside the secrecy of this house. And it was only many years later that Leslie learned about her sister who had been abused. Well, when Leslie writes this book, Learning to Forgive Our Mothers and Fathers, she begins to ponder what it would mean for her to forgive her father. Because her father claimed to be a Christian. He was dysfunctional. He probably had some kind of mental disorder. He certainly did. But what does it mean if if he maybe is a Christian, a deeply dysfunctional Christian, what does it mean then to forgive? And Leslie struggles through this, through the entire book, without clear resolutions, because she doesn't know what this will be like. Forgiveness leads to reconciliation. God has taken the step to reconcile himself with us as Trevor talked to us last night about. But what does it mean for us to take on the character of our king by becoming people who forgive? I don't know this for certain, but I think I'm right. And that is, I I think I know what the first hour in heaven is going to be like. I imagine... I don't really know this, but it has to be true. 
I don't know when it will happen, but I describe it as the first hour. I imagine the first hour of heaven uh, to be composed of millions of coffee tables. Now, if you're properly Northern Irish, you might be drinking tea. But you will learn in heaven to drink coffee. (laughs) Flat white. Good coffee beans. Mild roast. All right, so that's what I imagine heaven to be. I imagine it to be coffee tables spread out that you can see throughout the whole horizon. Because in the first hour of heaven, many of us are going to have to make amends with people we are unreconciled with in this life. Many of us are going to have to sit down and have that conversation that we don't want to happen now. Because in heaven, if heaven is anything, it is a world that is fully reconciled. There will be no heaven until there is reconciliation. There can be no reconciliation until truth is told and until we embrace one another in forgiveness. So I imagine heaven then for the first hour, and maybe some of us will need two, to be a time when we will look, we will be nose to nose and eye to eye with people with whom we are out of sorts people with whom we had the opportunity to reconcile in this life and did not. And if there's any tears in heaven, it'll be over coffee. And it'll be a time when we look with one another and we talk to one another and we apologize to one another and we make amends. And then Johnny, or whoever is playing the drums first, will start to hear the tap of the drum. And that drum will not tap until reconciliation has occurred. And then the rest of the instruments will all begin to play. The brass, the strings, the French horn, the keyboard or piano. And then people will begin to sing Amazing Grace. And then heaven can begin. And then the joys of heaven will explode because the character of our king is a God who forgives. And we are called to live into the character of this king by becoming forgiving people. Do you know how far forgiveness goes in creating justice and peace? Don't fight for justice fight for forgiveness. Because people who forgive create justice. And only people who forgive create justice. Sometimes I hear in leaders in the United States, we will bring them to justice. Do you know what that means usually? Punishment. They're not thinking beyond punishment to reconciliation and restoration and peace. Our king, whose character is covenant love 
and cruciformity is a king who comes to bring peace through justice and through reconciliation. We are called to reconciliation that will lead to a newly ordered society where there will be peace and justice and love established as the only characteristics we know of our people. Well, that was a little long on that one. But I have a feeling we need to hear that. That the first hour of heaven will not begin until reconciliation has occurred. And the kingdom of God has broken into our world now, and we can begin that process of reconciliation as Christians embodying reconciliation in this world. Jesus says, And lead us not into temptation, which is connected to forgiveness, but deliver us from evil. This God is a God who's in control of history, who is providing for us, who forgives us, and who wants to protect us so that we can live a life of holiness. The character of the king determines the character of the kingdom. And I would just, we can focus on many topics, but all I focused on in these two days is that this, char- this king is marked by covenant love and cruciformity. Now we have to shift topics from the first theme that, of, of the king to the second theme of God ruling. And I said that it is common to talk about God ruling if God is the king and Jesus is our king and they are ruling to focus on a term like lordship. We'll look at that on Thursday. So today I want to look at the theme of redemption. And to do this, I want to do something a little different. We're going to really drill down by looking at a series of passages in the Gospel of Luke that have a parallel in Matthew that is on your app and is the theme uh, section for today. But I want to look at a series of passages that will illustrate what I think we can call the aims of Jesus. Jesus rules by redeeming, but what does redemption mean in the pages of the Jesus way? What does it mean for Jesus to save us? What does it mean for him to bring redemption? I want to suggest to you that very often our expectations for Jesus' redemption are very short-sighted. That Jesus brings a vision of redemption that is so comprehensive that we cannot even begin to live in to the fullness of what he is bringing for us. Now I'm going to start where some people who are Protestants get nervous where I'm going to begin. I'm going to begin with Mary. All right. In my world, when you, when you mention Mary, my Protestant friends break out into a rash. The only time they want Mary mentioned is at Christmas, and we can unwrap her from our, from our Christmas decorations and put her in a creche, and then on December 31st or January 1st, we wrap her back up, tap her on the bottom, and say, go away for 11 months. <clears throat> you, can, you can get rid of that, Mary. But the Mary of the Gospels is significant. She's mentioned, there's more about Mary in the New Testament uh, than almost anyone other than Jesus, Paul, and Peter. 
and then Mary. Maybe John. You could add a little John. But Mary comes up quite a bit. So we're going to look at the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. And then we're going to go through the Gospel of Luke, and I want to sketch for you the kind of redemption that Jesus wants to bring for people who want to be connected to his kingdom. And here's what I promise you. This is going to be a challenge for our churches. This is the kingdom challenge to the church. And we'll look at the church and the kingdom tomorrow. And I'll solve all the theological problems about that. In Luke 1, we read this. And Mary said, this is verse 46, My soul glorifies, that's in Latin, magnificat. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So Mary, you know, she's a 14-year-old girl, and she's been told that she gets to be the mother of the Messiah. You know, how, how cool is that? Except she's not married, and she's pregnant, and life is going to be tough. She's going to be called an adulteress her whole life. She's going to marry a man who marries a woman who's called an adulteress, and he loses his status. And their little baby boy, in Hebrew, would have been called a mamzer, which is a nice term for an illegitimate child. That's not the way to change the world, but that's the way God created the first Christmas. He got three people in deep trouble in society and said, now that I've got you where I want you, we're going to change the world. Amazing story. And Mary says that God is going to be my Savior, for he has been mindful of the poverty. Humble humility here is not about necessarily about uh, a sense of guilt before God, but about her, her, her economic situation in Israel. For the poverty of his son. From now on, my Bible reads, all generations except Protestants will call me blessed. Is that in your Bible? That's how we read it, isn't it? You start blessing Mary, and you're going to get in trouble. You can bless the rains out of Africa with a group called Toto, but you don't dare bless Mary. All right, so we are to bless Mary from now on. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. Now Mary starts describing through the power of the Spirit in prophetic language, what she knows God is going to do through her son, her baby boy. All right? She begins to suffer for her baby boy before her baby boy suffers for her. And so does Joseph. And so did Jesus suffer for being the one who was going to suffer for his, in his social status. But she describes what her baby boy is going to do. And she is pumped about what is finally going to happen to Israel. He has performed mighty deeds, verse 51, with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Did you notice she slipped into the past tense? So confident is she that God is going to do these things, she describes them as done. Wow. I love it. He has brought down rulers. Now, she's got her eyes. This 14-year-old girl in Galilee has her eyes on Herod the Great, who makes Robert Mugabe look like a Sunday school teacher. 
Herod killed everybody who suggested that they might be his successor. And this little girl in Israel is looking him nose to nose, eye to eye, toe to toe, and saying, you're coming down, baby, and my son is going to be on the throne. Think about it. You got your choice. She's evangelistic almost at this point. He has lifted up the poor. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he sent the rich away packing. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The promises to Abraham are being fulfilled in her baby boy, and she is excited. Do not think of Mary as the European art has her. She is not dressed with a nice white little veil and a perfectly blue pleated outfit with her hands like this and her cheeks pink and just has pursed lips. This is a woman who's got her sleeves rolled up and she's looking at hair and eye to eye and she's saying, bring it on. God is going to bring you down, and my baby is going to be right behind, is going to be right here on the throne, and I'm going to be behind him whispering suggestions of how to run Israel. The Mary of the Bible is one tough woman, not a pious, pensive, poker-faced woman of Catholic and European art. That's not a criticism of Catholicism. That's a criticism of art about Mary. Well, we got to go on. Zechariah, her cousin, sang a song in the same chapter, and he said in verse 68, Praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Now, he's looking at the Messiah through the lens of his own son, John the Baptist, who's going to be born. And he begins to see what God is going to do through them in the redemption of Israel. Now we're talking first century understanding of salvation. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, as he said to his holy prophets long ago. And how does he define salvation? Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Social redemption and liberation of Israel for Rome. And this is a political rally, and they are pumped and excited, and they can't wait for this stuff to start happening. And then Jesus does all the wrong things. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, an oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Luke chapter 3. Mary... Zechariah, and John the Baptist, who I call J.B. John the Baptist is preaching repentance at the River Jordan. And people come to John and they say, what should we do? What does repentance look like for the kingdom of God now that it has arrived? Listen to John's answers. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. He sounds like Mary. He sounds like Zechariah. Liberation, economic distribution. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to. 
Now, if you know that you'd start doing that, and the system falls apart. So John's pretty radical. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? And they were Mennonites, and they said, don't go to war anymore. Accidentally, that's not what they said, and I wish they had. He said, don't extort money, which they had the power to do. Don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. That's what repentance in the kingdom of God looks like. Economic distribution. The distribution of power. The non-exercise of oppressing capacities. The desire to create equity and justice and honesty. So this is the vision of three prophets in the New Testament. Mary, Zechariah, and John the Baptist. But we're concerned with the Jesus way. How did Jesus talk about redemption? I'm glad you asked. That's where I was going next. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Shabbat, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. I'd love to know if this was the lectionary reading of the day, or Jesus, like a Baptist, got to choose his own text. It doesn't matter, because he makes it his own text. He said, he read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, like my mom and dad. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the jubilee to proclaim the year of the Lord. Interesting text to choose or to read, but far more interesting what Jesus does next. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down in the posture of a teacher. You stood to read, and you sat to teach. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, ready to hear his midrash or his sermon for the day. Shortest sermon in history. And he began by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's shorter than a 12-minute sermon. He said, In front of everyone in his hometown, Isaiah was talking about me. I have come preach good news to the poor and to liberate. The message of Jesus is like the message of Mary, like the message of Zechariah, and like the message of John. It's about liberation in all its dimensions. It's about cruciformity, because in this text, Jesus is rejected by his hometown synagogue people, and he's kicked out of the city and he is cast toward Jerusalem where he will die for the sins of his people. So cruciformity begins after his first sermon. In Luke chapter 6, we have one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, the Beatitudes of Jesus according to Luke. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. This is just like his mother's sermon, uh, song. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, 
when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Jesus predicts in the kingdom of God there will be a radical reversal of who's in charge and who will be in charge. That the oppressors will come down and the poor will be lifted up. The kingdom of God will be marked by liberation, by justice, by peace, by reconciliation, by forgiveness. In Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist is in prison. He knew about Jesus' sermon, and he was probably fastened upon that one line where Jesus quoted from Isaiah about prisoners will be set free. So he says, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? John is usually confused in the Gospels. He's strong at the beginning, and then once Jesus takes over, he's confused. He's always asking the wrong questions. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Well, don't ask Jesus questions, ever. But if you do, expect to get spun in circles. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to the many who were blind. So he replied to the masters, this is what I want you to tell John. Now, if you look at your cross-references, he quotes Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, and Isaiah 61. So we're right back to his inaugural sermon in Nazareth. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's the redemptive mission of Jesus, to liberate people comprehensively from all their sicknesses, all their diseases, all their social exclusions, like the lepers, all their economic disabilities, and to bring them into the kingdom of God around him where he becomes the Lord, and they experience economic justice and distribution so that all the people are taken care of in the kingdom of God. Now, we're running out of time. I've got 48 seconds. It'll take me that long to find Acts chapter 2. You might know what happens in between here. This is a series of passages, isn't it? Mary, Zechariah, John the Baptist, Jesus, one, two, three times, describes what redemption looks like, and they're all describing the same thing. Then Jesus dies. Then Jesus is raised. Then Jesus is ascended. And then Jesus sends what my holiness Pentecostal grandma called one word, the Holy Ghost. That was one word for her. And what happens? This is where we begin to see the kingdom of God embodied in a people. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 reads, they devoted themselves after they had received the Holy Ghost They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, 
everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, strong term, and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread. They ate together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I'll finish with this. Mary heard the angel Gabriel tell her that her son was going to be the Messiah. And she paid attention to Jesus, and he seemed to be doing a lot of wrong things. But she put up with him. And then he was crucified. And she was at the cross. Do you know that Mary was in Acts chapter 1 with the apostles when they prayed? Mary is living with John, who lives in Jerusalem. John Mark uh, and the families that live in Jerusalem. And Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit fills them. And Mary suddenly sees in the Pentecostal community all that she hoped for in the Magnificat. And here's the point. You and I have an obligation to embody the kingdom of God so much as is possible in our local churches by bringing the liberating justice economic redemption that Jesus, Mary, Zechariah, and John the Baptist told us. We have an obligation to embody this kingdom in our world. You in Northern Ireland, or Ireland, or wherever you're from, and I in the United States, we have an obligation that the church is the place the kingdom of God begins. Do not trust in princes or rulers. Trust in Jesus as your king, and let him shape how we live and embody the kingdom in this world. As we finish in our classes at Northern Seminary, hashtag boom. Thank you.